You are listening to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Sevierville, where our mission is helping people move from their point of need to hope in Christ. For more information about our church, head on over to Sevier.Church. In today's sermon, student pastor Corwin Kulig will be using Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 to answer the question, what is our top priority? Amen. Isn't it good to know that we serve the ever-present Almighty God this morning? Isn't that good? Isn't that good news? Hey, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. And we do this in student world, so I'll need you to talk back to me a little bit. But um, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, when you're there, say word. There we go. See, BJ. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, when you're there, say word. Hey, as you get there, as you turn, as you find it, think about this question, uh, ponder it in your heart. What is your top priority? What is your top priority? Let me phrase it to you this way. If I were to put your life into movie form on the screen, what would be the theme of your life that we could say that's what's most important to them? What is your top priority? A few years ago, um, I bought a Bullseye Rectech. If you don't know what that is, it's basically a pellet smoker, um, and it, the cool thing about it, it goes from zero degrees to like 700 degrees in three minutes or something like that. And so uh, it came out of not necessity, it was definitely a want, um, but I wanted to help Morgan more in the kitchen as we have Esther, who's two, and just help cook more things. And so um, I'm terrible at cooking, by the way. Um, and so unless I have a recipe, I can follow that, but that's not really cooking. That's just like putting something together with instructions. And, and so anyway, so I got this Rectech Bullseye, and it allows you to grill, but also allows you to smoke. And so I uh, was loving it, doing great things with it, made some burgers. Those were good. Made some steak. It caught on fire, and I got the fire out and saved it. It was awesome. Um, and then uh, wasn't really picking up the hang of it. I followed every Facebook group I could. I read every blog I could to figure out how do I make better food with this thing. And so uh, Thanksgiving's coming around, and I look at Morgan, and I say, Morgan, I'm smoking the turkey. Because here's the reality. I've never found a turkey that I just absolutely loved until I had Ted Jordan and Casey Jones they made for Friendsgiving. That was out of this world. If you missed it, you missed it. But um, anyway, so I was like, I'm going to smoke the turkey. It's going to be awesome. And Morgan said, that's not a good idea. You've already tried it with the steaks. I've caught the Rectech on fire twice at this point. And, and so she said, this is not a good idea. I said, it'll be fine. That's kind of how I roll. Like, it'll be fine. We'll figure it out. And so anyway, so I looked up this recipe. I got up early Thanksgiving morning. I'm rubbing the turkey with this homemade butter and garlic thing I made. Got some seasonings I'm putting on, some Laurie seasonings out, just rubbing it in. It looked awesome. So I throw it on. It was low and slow at 250 for about hour, two hours. And then at the last hour to two hours, I was supposed to crank it up to 450 to cook it and then also give it that crisp. And so everything was good with the slow and go, like the low and slow. It was, it was all good. And then I'd start cranking it up, and um, everything's good. I'm watching it like a hawk because I've burned it up too many times, caught it on fire too many times, making sure. And then I turn around. And I go to do something, and literally 10 seconds later, Morgan's yelling, Corwin, black fire, black smoke, black smoke, black smoke. It's on fire again. Here's the best part of the story, though, or worst, however you take it. I'm on the bottom floor of a three-story apartment complex. 
So I have other people's lives in line. That's what, that's what I go in, all right? I'm like frantic, so I'm freaking out. I'm trying to turn it off. You're not supposed to unplug it. I did because lives were at stake. So unplugged it, drag it into the parking lot. I open it. It's the most beautiful turkey I've ever seen. I'm, I'm serious, legit, okay? And, and so, yes, it was a little charred and all that, but like you want your turkey to be a little, have a crunch, right? And so anyway, I'm serious. It, it looked awesome. I said, there's no way we just saved this thing. So I take it out put it, take it inside. We cut a piece off. I take a bite. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. It was incredible. One of the best turkeys I've ever had until we kept cutting because it was raw. So raw. The pot, the, I lucked out. The piece I had was not, but the rest of the turkey was raw. Why do I tell you that story? Because I think it is so easy for us to look so good on the outside. Corwin even put a tie on this morning. It's so easy for us to look good on the outside, but inside we are struggling. We are carrying some heavy weights and some burdens with us this morning. And But we don't want anyone to know it. So we put our makeup on, we get our nice clothes on, we come here, we put on a fake smile, but inside we are dying and we are struggling. Just like that turkey, we're raw and we need help. You know, maybe for you it's a secret sin no one knows about. Maybe it's misplaced priorities. Maybe you're broken and looking for answers. Maybe you're just here. But I want you to know that today is the day that you can walk free. And I believe Hebrews gives us the encouragement that we need to be able to do that. So before I read our text, I'd love to give you some context as to who the author is writing to. So it's written to Jewish Christians facing persecution. Uh, and so most of, this, most of this persecution was social or economic. They weren't necessarily getting thrown in jail or being killed for their faith, I don't believe, at this part of, the, um, of their persecution. That probably was coming. But they were facing more like social, economic difficulty because they were Jews that had professed Jesus. They had been repented and believed. And so we see, though, as based on what the writer of Hebrews writes, that many of these Jews were thinking of or had already gone back to the customs of their Jewish um, way of being raised. So ceremonial washings to sacrificing animals to just focusing only on what Moses and the angels had said. Um, here's how I can describe Hebrews as I've read it and as I've looked about it and thought about it. It's basically one big gospel sharing. Like constantly, the author is telling us and reminding us over and over and over again that we are sinners, God has sent Jesus to die for us, and that if we trust in him, we have eternity with him forever. He's constantly reminding us of this good news in the gospel of what Jesus has done for you and for me. And so it's constant, but I think we also, we can, we don't know who wrote it, we don't know who wrote this letter, but we can summarize the letter in its entirety with three words, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And so what this author is trying to get them to understand is, hey, Jesus is better than the hardships and the persecutions you're facing, but he's also, he's better than the angels. Because these Jewish Christians, they were going back to their old customs, and they were focusing only on what the angels had told the people of Israel. They were going back to the Old Testament. They kind of rejected, to an extent, what Jesus had said, and they were only focusing on what God said through his angels, right? If you've read the Old Testament, you know that many times God sent angels to be messengers of the news for him. And so he's saying Jesus is better than the angels because, yes, the, God sent them to be messengers to his people, but Jesus himself is the message they were proclaiming. 
He is the message of the gospel, the message of God's love, and his son's ultimate sacrifice for you. So Jesus is better than the angels, but also Jesus is better than Moses. Moses for them was who God chose to deliver his people out of Egypt, but he was also the moderator of God's law to Israel. He communicated the law of God to the nation of Israel. Moses did. And so the writer is saying, hey, Jesus is better than Moses because unlike Moses, Jesus brought and he moderated God's new plan for salvation for all. So what Moses could only talk about, Jesus did it. And he did it perfectly. And he was the ultimate sacrifice for you. But also, Jesus is better than any Jewish priest. Like I said earlier, they had gone back to sacrificing and they were being tempted to go and sacrifice animals to pay for their sins. But what the writer is saying is, hey, Jesus is better than any priest you can go to because he was the ultimate sacrifice for your sin. And his blood was shed so no more had to be. And so Jesus is better that's the theme. And so, as you, with that in our minds, let's read Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we also have been, have such a great, let me start again. <laughs> Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The first thing we need to see this morning is it's progress, not perfection. Progress, not perfection. You see, the first word he uses in chapter, in chapter 12 is therefore. And so this is just a fun fact when you're reading Scripture. If you ever see a therefore, you need to go backwards to figure out what the therefore is there for so we can understand in entirety, its entirety of what the Bible is saying. And so the therefore is pointing back to Hebrews chapter 11. And if you've been in church, grown up in church, if you haven't, that's okay, I'll tell you. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the chapter of faith or the hall of faith. And so many of these people, every single person listed in Hebrews 11, are people from the Old Testament that faithfully obeyed God. They are known for their faith. And I don't know if you're like me, but I can read that and I struggle. And I struggle and say, how could they do this so perfectly? How are they able to be known by that? How are they, how, like, do they not have any struggles? And it's so easy to get stuck there. And so what I want to do for you is I want to point out to you all the wrongs that scripture lays out that these people did in the hall of faith. And so Abraham, it starts with Abraham. And Abraham, he was called by God to go to a distant land and was promised that he was going to be made a great nation. And so Abraham, from what we know, he gets up and he goes. But he was only partially obedient at first. God told Abraham, take you and your wife Sarah, your family, your immediate family. But he also took Lot, his nephew. So he was partially obedient. But to stack on top of that, he also, when he goes into these cities, he tells Sarah to say, hey, tell them you're my sister so they don't kill me. So he's not even fully obeying and trusting that God is going to provide everything that they need on the journey. Sure, yes, he got up and he left, and that's incredible faith. But he was partially obedient, and then he didn't fully trust that God had it all figured out. He was afraid that they would kill him because how beautiful his wife was. Then you go to Sarah. Sarah's also mentioned in Hebrews 11. Sarah laughs at God when he promises a son. 
Sarah and Abraham were well beyond the bearing of children age. And God said, you're going to have a son. It's going to be as part of the covenant I've given to you, part of the promise. And so Sarah laughs at God, and then not only does that, but takes into her own hands and gives Abraham her servant, Hagar, to then sleep with and have a child with, to to make this promise become known. But yet we know her by her faith in Hebrews 11. Moses murdered an Egyptian, told God no, and wasn't allowed to enter promised land for the lack of trust that he had. And yet he's known for faith. Rahab, in the book of Joshua, was a prostitute before trusting in the God of Israel. And yet we know her by her faith. Samson, who we'd all agree, never seemed to live up to his real potential, had a tragic ending to his life after being enticed by Delilah, and yet he is known by his faith. And then finally, David, whose pride killed 70,000 men, who lusted after Bathsheba, committed adultery, got her pregnant, and then had her husband killed. And yet, Scripture calls him a man after God's own heart, and he is known for his faith in Hebrews 11. How? Why? Because God is not asking us to be perfect. We can't be. You see, none of these people were perfect, and yet they are remembered by their faith, not their mess-ups. You see, God is saying the same very thing to us. He's not asking you to be perfect. You can't be. Why did Jesus come? If we could be perfect, Jesus didn't need to die. But we couldn't be perfect. And while we were still imperfect sinners, Christ died for you so that we may live. And so the question is not, do we need to be perfect? But the question is, are we progressing? What I mean by that, let me say it this way. Are you closer to Jesus today than you were yesterday? Or how about this? Are you trusting in Jesus today like you did when you gave your life to him? Are you growing in your relationship with him? Are you allowing him to change you from the inside out? It's about progress, not perfection. We cannot be perfect. There's one more person I want to tell you about. He's not in Hebrews 11. He wasn't born yet. It's my grandfather. He didn't give his life to Jesus until he was 77 years old, 76, 77, around that. Long time. But here's the the crazy thing about Papa. He grew up in church. He was there every day of the week from what what, what I remember him telling me. He grew up going in his mother's belly. And he was here all the time. He was at his church growing up all the time, at the youth group, at all of it, VBSs, all of it. Even when he was committing his own issues, having his own sin problems, he was still faithful to be at the church. And when he was 76, 77 years old, he realized that being religious wasn't the same as having relationship. He needed to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And at 77 years old, he realized that. And his life started to change. I remember going over to his house and he would fall asleep in his recliner with a cup of scotch. And I remember as his life started to change, he started getting closer to Jesus, that that cup of scotch changed to a bottle of water. Still was sleeping, but it was a bottle of water this time. And, And then I remember I hated, dreaded going out to eat with him because he was so ugly and nasty, especially on Sundays to his, the waiter and waitresses. 
And I remember hating it and dreading it because he would just fuss them out and they're doing their absolute best. And then he gave his life to Jesus. And I still dreaded going out to eat with him. You know, it's 77 years of sin he's been living in. But I remember watching him apologize to the waiter and waitress. I'm so sorry. I was just really hungry. But I want you to know I'm sorry. It's not an excuse for my actions. And I want to tell you about Jesus who's changed my life. I remember getting calls from him in college where he would tell me, he said, Corwin, let me tell you about this conversation I just had with my exterminator about how I told him about Jesus. I remember getting calls from him telling me, hey, I just shared the gospel with um, someone I just gave a Bible to. I became a Gideon. I gave a Bible. I got to share the gospel. I remember this guy. He was a racist. And I remember him crying to me, telling me that some of the, um, there's an African-American man that led his life group, and he said it was the most faithful man he's ever had teach him the Bible. And he was a racist, and now he loved Jesus, and he saw people the way Jesus sees them. Man, I don't give a rip about who he was before Jesus. I just care about how he was before he died and how he gave his life to Jesus. Because it's not about progress. It's about perfection. It's about progress, not perfection. Second thing I want you to see, it's marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon, not a sprint. There's two words I want us to really focus on, and it's the word endurance and the word race. The word endurance in the end of verse 1 where it says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. That word endurance translates to patience in suffering. Patience in suffering. The second word race is the same word used as conflict. So this is what he's saying. Be patient in the fight. Be patient in the struggle. Be patient in the conflict that is life. Be patient in your persecution. There's a race back in Georgia. Uh, it's called the Georgia Death Race. Already I'm out. I was out at race, but then I'm really out at death. And so Georgia Death Race, and this is what the website says. 74-ish miles. What does that even mean? Like, I need an exact number. Don't tell me ish, right? Uh, and so it's 74-ish miles in the mountains starting at Vogel State Park and ends at Amicalola State Park. And, and so that basically in the duration of this race, you'll have 16,000 feet of climbing and 16,000 feet of descent. And uh, throughout the race, there are aid stations. And if you don't finish it in 25 hours, they cut you off. Like, you just can't finish it because you're probably going to die on the course. And uh, some stretches of the race, I think we'd agree, are easier than others, and some are definitely harder. Like, I'm not saying I'd want to do 16,000 feet of descent, but I'd much rather do that than go up. Amen? Amen? There we go. There we go. You're awake. Look, it's really, is it 12, really, in your minds? Like, you should be awake. Anyway, um, but, um, so... There's a guy at the church I, I served at previously, and I, he did this race. He's, on a, he's, about to, he's trained for his third time. The first time he went to the ER, couldn't finish. Second time he went to the ER after he finished, but he saw alligators on the, in the mountains, so you know he wasn't seeing right. So why would you do this a third time? I don't know, to say he can. But I asked him, Matt, how do you do that? Well, Corwin, it's one step at a time. Okay, awesome. No, how do you do that? And he said, seriously. In my mind, if I tell myself I just got to put one step in front of the other, if I can take one more step, I can keep going. And some of us this morning, you need to apply that to you spiritually. You are struggling so much with burdens and weights of this life, but if you've trusted in Jesus, he's with you to help you make one more step. 
and we're going to learn how in a little bit. But wouldn't we agree as well, if we go on a race like this, we would only take what's necessary. Like, like you're not going to take 50 pounds of food. You're not going to take these shoes, and you're not going to be dressed like this to go run a race. You're going to only take what's necessary. Race, in this chapter, in this chapter of Hebrews, is a metaphor for life. And what the writer says, he tells us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and then run the race. Race is a metaphor for life. All of us have a life we're living. We're here, aren't we? All of us are living a life. And so remember, the author is writing to Christians that are being persecuted and he's telling them that Jesus is better, so keep fighting, keep running, keep living for Jesus, keep seeking him. And, you know, we may not be able to relate to persecution the way that this church was, right? Most of us, if not all of us, we've never lost a job because we're a Christian. Or or we haven't maybe, maybe we've been ostracized ostracized from family. But, But, like, we have not experienced persecution like being experienced in Hebrews 12. But all of us, we have experienced hardship. Every single one of us have experienced the struggle life brings, Maybe the struggle is just simply balancing all the priorities that come with kids and life and just life in general. You know, parents, it's like this. You, you, pick up, you wake up, take your kids to school, you take one of them to a practice afterwards and another kid to another practice and then figure out how to, you have to eat, eat a meal in between that, make sure you get home, you get them showered, get them ready for bed, make sure they have done their homework. And then you go to bed and then you wake up and it's repeat and it's constant. And it gets hard. It's like you're running on a treadmill. You're running harder and harder, but you're not going anywhere. Let me, let me explain it to you this way. I have a ladder here, obviously. And um, I don't like heights, but I want to show you I can get up the ladder fairly decently. Right? Right? Not bad. Not bad. Can we celebrate that real quick? I made it up. Yeah. Good, 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 good. All right, so now though, knowing, knowing that I don't like heights, I got they're good, um, what if I started putting all these bags on and then decided, hey, I'm now going to climb the ladder? What do you think? You can respond. What would you think? It'd be difficult. I'm, I'm crazy. What are you doing? You just told me you didn't like heights, now you're going to... Climb on this ladder? I'm going to try. And so we get all, I'm going to get all these bags. I think I can get this one too. Hold on. All right. Now I'm going to climb. <laughs> think I can go one more? Tim, you got me, right? I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Right? Because it's silly. I would really hurt myself. Let me pose it to you this way, though. This is your life. And that's looking to Jesus. And we're called to follow him. If we've trusted in him, we're called to follow him with all abandon, everything we've got. 
And yet, many times we run life like me trying to climb this ladder with all these bags. Because we're carrying burdens. We're carrying sins. We're weighed down by our struggles. You know, maybe, maybe one of the weights is family. Let me say it this way. Family's an awesome thing. It's a great thing. But doesn't Scripture say if you put anything above Jesus, anything above our relationship with God, that becomes an idol? And so maybe this morning you need to fix your priorities. Because I'm telling you, if, if your family is above your relationship with Jesus, it's weight. You can't live the life God's called you to live, Christian, believer. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your past. You wear the shame and the guilt and the frustration from your past, and you can't get moved past it. I want to tell you something, that Jesus knew what he bought when he died for you. You don't have to live in guilt and shame of your past. He set you free from that. And so don't let your past mistakes and regrets Hold you back from following God who gave you everything so that you may live. Maybe it's personal preferences. Church, I want to tell you something. If your personal preference gets in the way of people coming to know Jesus, and if your personal preference gets in the way of worshiping God, it's weight, it's baggage that needs to go. It's not welcome here. Maybe it's anxiety or fear. I want to tell you something that may be new. I don't believe anxiety in, of a, in, of a, in and of itself is a sin. I believe Jesus was very anxious in the garden. The scripture says he was deeply grieved and he agonized. Luke's account talks about how he's, his sweat was like drops of blood. You can't convince me he was not anxious. But what, is his, what did his anxiety do? It took him to prayer. It took him to the Father. And so anxiety, if it takes you to the Father... That's not sin, but anxiety that controls our life and keeps us from living the life God's called us to live, that's baggage, that's weight, it needs to be dropped. And Jesus is there waiting to take the bags and weights for you. You just have to let him. So throw your weights, and this leads to the last point, Jesus, nothing else. Jesus, nothing else. We can all agree life is hard, unpredictable and ever-changing. But we can persevere, we can overcome sins in our life because Jesus is the perfect example and witness surrounding us. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham and Sarah and the rest because he is God. Jesus perfectly endured the cross, the shame, the hatred, the anger, and the anger from his own people, and he died for your sin. We can look to the example of Jesus because he lived a perfect life and died in our place. We can look to the example of Jesus because he is perfect and in him we are able to have everlasting life. You see, the author, he doesn't say, look at the witnesses. He doesn't say, look at Moses, look at Abraham, look at Sarah, look at Noah. He doesn't say, look at them. He doesn't say, look at the good people in your life. He doesn't say, look at your pastors. He says, look to Jesus and Jesus alone. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I, I so badly wish I could promise you this, but I can't. I can't promise you that life is going to be easy and you won't face hardship. 
I can't promise you absence from struggle. I can't promise you absence from pain. But here's what I can promise you. And it comes straight from Scripture. That if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, that he is with you every step or misstep of the way. Listen to this. Even in your mistakes, failures, and mess-ups, if you've trusted in him, he's still with you. He doesn't run from you. He's with you every step of the way, and that's what I can promise you. That's the hope I can give to you, is that when you trust in him, no matter what you've done, what you've thought, what you've said, he never abandons you. He's a good father. Why would he? So I want to go back to the question in the beginning. What is your top priority? What is your top priority? I want to tell you how I believe we can prioritize Jesus and make him top. Hebrews 10, 22 through 25, it'll be on the screen, says this. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's three ways we prioritize Jesus based on this text. One, draw near to Christ. Draw near to him. What does that mean? Intimate relationship with Jesus. How do I do that? I study his word. I pray I listen for him to answer. I worship him corporately. I worship him privately. I tell others about who he is. Think of it this way. How do you know the people you care about? You know them. You spend time with them. So we draw near to Christ. That's how we prioritize Jesus. But we also hold fast the confession of our hope. Here's the reality, church. And Pastor Dan just finished a series looking to this. We look ahead to the coming of our Savior And remember and rest in the fact that this life is temporary. It's passing away. It's going away. But one day we will be reunited with Jesus. And we look to that. We hold fast to that hope. When everything feels hopeless, we know it's not because he's coming again and we will be with him. So we draw near. We hold fast. But then we stir up one another to love and good works. I know you're here this morning but maybe you're watching online. I want you to know you cannot fully follow Christ without the church. And I'm not saying that because I work here. It's in Scripture. You cannot fully follow Christ without being connected to the local church. You cannot do it. But I want to go a little further. I'm not necessarily either just talking about sitting in a pew. I'm talking about connecting with people, part of God's body. I'm talking about people doing life with those that are in this room, sharing the same Jesus as you, sharing the same mindset of going after those who need Jesus. You cannot fully follow God if we're not stirring each other up for love and good works. And that only happens, yes, worshiping corporately. That's important, but it happens in a life group where you're growing and you're getting to know people. It happens when you serve together in the ministries of this church or in the ministries of this area, when you're serving together. It happens when we're going on mission. 
to reach the world. That's how we stir up one another to love and good works. Not by just coming and consuming, but by getting up and going and doing life with people. Our connections class is a great start to figure that out if you are interested in that. So we prioritize Jesus by drawing near to him, holding fast to the confession of our hope, and stirring up one another to love and good works. And so we're going to enter into a time of response. And I want to ask you another question. How is God moving in your heart and in your mind? How is he moving in you and through you? I'm going to go back to the Georgia death race for a second. At the beginning of the race, they give out a one-pound old used railroad nail or pike, whatever it's called. This is not from experience. I found this on the side of the road. Um, I did not run this race. Um, But they give it to you, and your requirement is you are to carry this the entirety of the race, which one pound, what's the big deal, right? But you're doing 74-ish miles. And so what maybe started out as something that you barely even noticed, you feel it with every step by the time you're done. Today, maybe that's what your burden has become. What started out as something you didn't even notice is all-consuming to your life. You get up thinking about it, you go to bed thinking about it. You get up thinking about it, you go to bed thinking about it. And here is what the race also calls this. They make sure everyone realizes that this is your burden to carry. And you know what? That's perfect with what the enemy says. Satan wants to tell you you're alone. Satan wants to tell you that you have to carry this by yourself. Satan wants you to know that nothing can help you, nothing can fix anything. But you know what my Jesus says? He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus says, let me carry that burden for you. In fact, I already have on Calvary's cross. You see, while we were sinners, while we were broken, while we were messed up, while we were stuck in our shame, our guilt, Christ died for us so that we may live. And he's seated at the right hand of God waiting to return and claim what is his. You do not have to carry your burdens alone. The church is here to help you with that. But more importantly than that, when you feel like you're unbelievably alone and there's no one that will listen to you, Jesus is with you every step of the way. Every step of the way. So maybe this morning you need to come and you need to give your life to Jesus. We're going to have people down here that would love to tell you about that, how to do that. Maybe this morning you need to come and you need to just lay weights down. And say, no more, I want to drop that, Lord, in your power, and I want to follow you and live the life you've called me to live. Whatever that may be for you, however he's moving, I pray that you would listen to the Holy Spirit and you'd move in how he calls you to. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll respond how we need. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the ability to gather together. Lord, I pray, Father, that as we Think about your words in Hebrews 12. God, would you move in us? Would you convict us? Would you help us to see where we fall short? And Father, I pray that you would just do a mighty work in this place. Lord, I pray for those, 
Or maybe I didn't list their, their weight or their struggle or their burden. Maybe for them it's, it's sports. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's gossip. I, I don't know, Lord. But Father, what I do know is you desire to walk with each and every one of us. And I pray that if there's anybody in this room that hasn't given their life to you, that today would be the day of victory. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and share. And if you want a pastor to follow up with you regarding today's message, reach out to us at severe.church slash follow up. Thanks again for joining us on the First Baptist Church Severeville podcast.